Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Mira Nabulsi. Last month, oppressive summer heats, lack of water and electricity, and pent-up anger against government corruption sparked mass protests in southern oil-rich city of Basra in Iraq. It quickly spread across the south of the country and into Baghdad. People in Iraq have sent a clear message to their government. Enough is enough. When you hear their chants, you will see that it's really beyond the demands for public services like water, electricity, and also jobs and employment, because people are rising against the political parties. For example, they say, we want all of the political parties to leave. One protester is saying, please listen to me. It's about a homeland. Our homeland has been stolen from us. This week, we bring you the first part of an in-depth conversation about the root causes of the protests in Iraq with Belsem Mustafa, a PhD researcher in modern languages and politics at the University of Birmingham. Also this week, artist and author Dr. Kara Judea Al-Hadif joins us to talk about her children's book, Zazu Dreams. It's a tale about the adventures of a Sephardic boy and his imaginary friend Amala Mute Husky as they traverse the globe on a humpback whale across time and space, experiencing the marvels and mayhem of the relationship between humans and their environments. All this coming up on this week's Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Do stay with us. Since July 8, several of Iraq's governorates have been gripped by protests, which spread from the southern port city of Basra all the way to the capital, Baghdad. Demonstrators have been rallying against power shortages, a lack of clean water, unemployment, and corruption. Here are some of the protesters speaking with Al Jazeera about their grievances and demands. These protests are for the oppressed people of Basra. We are asking for what is rightfully ours. The government should provide clean water, job opportunities, electricity and basic infrastructure. These basic needs are the responsibility of the Prime Minister and the Governor. We came out to protest the injustice and lack of job opportunities for the unemployed. The government isn't listening to us. If we disrupt the oil production, everyone will run to us, including the US, and respond to our demands. Do not push us to the limits. So far we are peacefully demonstrating and these protests are merely a warning. We are the residents of Basra, not infiltrators. We're simply raising our demands, which are clean water, electricity, basic services and jobs. Our peaceful protests are met with bullets. Who are the protesters? What are the root causes of the most recent unrest? What has been the state's response? And what has been the role of Iraqi political parties vying for power following the parliamentary elections, which were held on May 12? To answer these questions, Vomena producer Shahram Agamir spoke with Balsam Mustafa, a PhD researcher in modern languages and politics at the University of Birmingham. The protests started about a month ago, early July. They first erupted in the outskirts of Basra in the south, and they then spread to the center and then across the southern cities in Iraq and also to a lesser extent in Baghdad. 
The spark of the protests were, you know, basic demands. I prefer to call them people rights, electricity, water. And also there was another issue, especially in Basra, which is unemployment and foreign labor. So these were the basic demands. But beyond that, if you listen to people's chants, you will notice that this is much more beyond the demands and the rights. It's like arising against the political system, the political parties, all of them. It's about seeking a homeland. What are the protesters' key demands? And do they vary across different geographical locations and cities? The basic demands are the same. Every city in Iraq suffer from the same things. So there are uh, poor public services, especially poor electricity. And, you know, because it's summertime and this is something that Iraqis suffer from every year. It recurs every year. The heat is unbearable and it's accompanied with a shortage in power supply, in electricity. And also more recently, there was a shortage in water and especially in Basra there is a high salinity in water. So in all of the provinces, the protesters are calling for the same demands and also are chanting similar slogans. This is how it all started in the beginning. But three weeks later, uh, you can see that there are also coordination committees in each province, and they have a list of demands that could vary from one province to another. For example, there are some uncompleted projects that they want the governments to do and to complete. Uh, This is just one example, but generally the demands are the same. There are the protesters and then there are the tribes who are meeting with the Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi. But there is another problem here because the protesters say these do not represent us and they do not represent our demands. Just to be clear, you're referring to protesters saying that the people who are meeting with Haider al-Abadi or are going to meet with mm-hmm. Haider al-Abadi are mm-hmm. not necessarily their representatives? Yeah, exactly. But again, if you see the protesters, if you watch them, if you hear them, you could also feel that there is not really a uniform demands because you could hear someone, for example, calling for a replacement of the political system. So instead of the parliamentary system, they would say that we want a presidential system. So I would say that the basic demands are the same, but there is also a variation from one protest to another and across the provinces. And maybe this is because there is no one coordinated leadership of all the protesters in all of the provinces. But there seem to be four key demands, if I'm not mistaken, from based on what you're telling us. Employment, provision mm-hmm. of key services such as water and electricity, as well as the issue of corruption, sort of a lack of confidence in the political structure, if you like. During these protests, a lot can be learned by just listening to the chants. What can we make of the protest slogans? When you hear their chants, you will see that it's really beyond the demands for public services like water, electricity, and also jobs and employment, because people are rising against the political parties. For example, they say, we want all of the political parties to leave. One protester is saying, please listen to me. It's about a homeland. Our homeland has been stolen from us. It's really much beyond than this. It reflects the uh, discontent and the lack of faith in the political leaders and the political parties. So 
What has been the Iraqi state's response to these protests? It looks like it has been primarily using a stick with a promise of carrots to come later. Exactly, yeah. The response was oppressive. There were oppressive measures. So security forces and also members of the armed groups of some parties firing at the protesters. And indeed, more than dozens of the protesters were killed in the south. And hundreds among the protesters and also the security forces were injured. So there was the use of live ammunition and also water cannon. And there were reports of activists and also protesters who were chased and beaten. Many were arrested Although some of them were soon uh, released on bail, some are still missing. And it's not just the crackdown, not just against the protesters, but against all the Iraqi people across the country because the internet was blocked. This lasted one week or more than one week. And there was also media blackout. You couldn't know people in Iraq. They couldn't know what was going on in the provinces. And in terms of the promises, as you said, to start with the Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi, He promises uh, certain measures, for example, the allocations of jobs to um, unemployed people in Basra and also in other provinces, and the allocations of $3 million to Basra. But these contradict with the state budget's allocations for this year, which already suffers from a deficit of $10 billion. Indeed, we've seen videos circulating on social media showing people who are filling application forms after those allocations were released, but their numbers exceeded the number of jobs allowed. And even there was a statement by the Ministry of Planning, and this is only in Basra, by the way, saying we have more than half a million applicants to only 10,000 jobs. The measures were unrealistic and superficial. Then also there was the creation or the establishment of a cell called the crisis cell. And this cell is basically to create a cell within each ministry who was supposed to do the things that the post-2003 governments failed to do, such as listing the numbers of people who are without jobs or the demands. So it's very superficial. And it seems that they don't have either short or long-term planning of how to solve this. And the question that everyone is asking, how can a caretaker government does all the things that all the governments have failed to do throughout the last 15 years? There was an election, mm-hmm. a parliamentary election mm-hmm. in Iraq in May, and a new mm-hmm. government has not been formed. But that's why yes. Haider al-Abadi is the head of the caretaker government in Iraq at this point. Mm-hmm. There is also the suspension of the Minister of Electricity, Qasem al-Fahdawi. It was really a laughable measure because on one hand, it was unrealistic because the prime minister cannot do this without the approval of the parliament. And on the other hand, what about the ministers, the minister of education, the minister of health? The list goes on because it's not only about the Ministry of Electricity. Well, that was construed as a measure to appease the protesters, but there are other explanations for what might have happened. We'll come back and you know talk about that when we talk about the actual state of electricity and some of the plans and what has caused this uh, electricity cuts right. and power outages. Is the state using its formal forces of coercion or mm-hmm. are, are there also militia, the paramilitary groups involved in this coercion? It's both. So members of the security forces, I will not generalize and say all the security forces, 
who are involved in, the, in those oppressive measures. And there is also the militias, especially in the south. Guards of the headquarters or offices of certain parties were involved in firing at protesters. You know, just to be clear, in terms of states' repressive measures, they have also found ways on how to block protesters from getting into Tahrir Square in Baghdad, blocking mm-hmm. all the streets leading to them so that there would not be a critical mass formed at the square. Yeah, in Baghdad, although, as I said earlier, the protests were, were less in intensity uh, than the provinces in the south, and this really could be one reason because, you know, the green zone, because all, all of the parties, the Iraqi government is in the green zone. So they were very careful to protect the, the green zone. And they, as you said, blocked all the roads. They prevented the protesters uh, from moving forward. And a couple of weeks ago, they used water cannon to prevent the protesters from uh, progressing. And this could be another reason why the protests in Baghdad was less than in other provinces due to to the security measures taken by the government. You mentioned the disruption of the internet in Iraq. In addition to that, there seems to have been serious restriction on the use of social media, which is a very potent way for the protesters to organize. At first, people could not use the internet. They didn't have any network. But a few days later, the internet was back, but the network was very weak and limited and people could not use social media. The paradox here, the contradiction, is the statement released by the Ministry of Communication, because first they justified the cut of the internet service due to technical problems and certain cuts in some cables. But later, the Minister of Communication clearly said, we had to block people from using social media because they were misused by some people during the protests. So they even acknowledged this. But I think people uh, try to use certain apps to unlock the, the social media. Yes. Based on what I have seen, for instance, in protests in Iran, there are times that the state actually disrupts even mobile phone service in certain areas. Has that happened in Iraq? Essentially, protesters cannot even communicate via text messaging or phone calls. It happened in the early days of the protests. So when the internet was blocked, 3G network was very weak. You had to dial so many times in order to connect your families and to check on them. And even when you are successful, the quality of the voice was very bad. So this happened really, but it lasted for a short period of time, uh, about two days. And then the service was back. What are some of the similarities and uh, differences between the current protest and the other ones that have taken place since the summer of 2015? Well, the similarities is first the place where the protests erupted. So in 2015, the first place where those protests started was Basra. And after one protester, a very young protester, was killed by security forces, the protests spread to other nine cities in the south and in Baghdad. The demands were uh, roughly the same. So people were demanding electricity, uh, water, employment, uh, but also, of course, chanting against corruption. I mean, it was similar at the beginning just only the beginning of the protests. So it was led by people. I mean, the protests were spontaneous in 2015, Mm -hmm. as uh, they are uh, now. 
But then things shifted a lot. And there are, I think, uh, more differences than similarities between the wave of a protest that occurred in 2015 and this year's protests. The protests in 2015 took place first in Basra, but then the center of the protests moved to Baghdad especially uh, in Al-Tahrir Square. And the protest at that time was led by intellectuals, by academics, uh, journalists. So the intellectual elites were the ones who were in front, who called people to a protest. It started as a spontaneous, but, but then there was a leadership, and the leadership was by um, liberal, uh, we can call secular people, And after a short time, the liberal leaders collaborated with the powerful uh, Shia parties who uh, intervened and hijacked the protest after a short time. Are there specific mm -hmm. parties that you are referring to? Yes, at first it was Asa'ab Ahl al-Haq. And the interesting thing about 2015 protests is also there was like a distinction of identities. So the secular versus the Islamists. Because when the center of the protest moved from Basra to Baghdad, it was led by mostly by, as I said, intellectual and activists, and all of them were calling for a civil state. So the, the basic demands were the same, but their slogans were also calling, we want a civil state, we want a bread, a freedom, and a civil state. And, and civil state, to be clear, in their mm -hmm. lexicon is diametrically opposite to a theocracy. Yes, it has, I think, a unique meaning. And also it means that the separation between uh, religion and the state also refers to strong civil institutions and beyond the sectarian and ethnic lines, uh, etc. The number one, the key uh, slogan of that protest was in the name of religion, the thieves have stolen us. Mm. So when the Islamic parties meddled in, there was uh, like a clash of identities between Islamists and the secular. And, and this um, uh, civil and, state yeah, is... Dawla al-Madaniyya. Dawla al-Madaniyya, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah okay. that's right. And then, then later on, um, uh, Muqtada Sadr, the uh, Shia religious cleric, led the protests. And so it has uh, different uh, leadership and uh, it was politicized after a short period of time. It was about scoring, you know, political uh, points, unlike the wave of protest that uh, Iraq is witnessing right now, because it started without leadership spontaneously by people who are mostly ordinary people. So you could find youth who found themselves jobless after graduation Or you can find a father or a brother who has lost a relative, a friend, a son in the fight against ISIS. So it's more like ordinary people and they didn't have any leadership. From what I'm seeing is that now there is a role played by the tribes, although there is um, a clash between the protesters and the tribes because they say those who are going in delegations to meet the prime ministers are not representing us. And also there is like coordination committees in each province who are speaking on behalf of the protesters and they are drafting demands, sending them to the prime minister. And to be honest with you, I see those demands as unrealistic because the main issue is about the, the political parties, the election laws, a quota system. And unless these things, these main issues are resolved, the rest are only details 
everything else is meaningless. And when you talk about the quota system, you're talking about the system that was put in place starting in 2004 after the U.S. invasion. Can you remind us how that system works? There is an allocation of who can occupy a certain office. So the prime minister has always to be um, a Shia, and then the parliament president uh, Sunni, and the president Kurd. And this uh, was mirrored in all other institutions and posts. This is one of the legacies of 2003 U.S.-led invasion, and it lasted to this time. And this is the main problem in Iraq because it links to corruption, to patronage, uh, nepotism at the expense of marriage. So essentially you have a, if you like, a confessional system which is formed on the basis of identity politics. And Mm -hmm. that has been problematic. And you find that to be the main obstacle to any profound reforms in Iraq. That's right. Because imagine, you know, if there is a governmental institutions or a ministry and someone in charge, someone in a key post in that institution, and he has no qualifications at all. He's not competent or she, but he's only there because he belongs to a particular party. And because of the muhasasa system or of the quota system, in Arabic, uh, we call it muhasasa. This institution is under their uh, administration. So it's all about power sharing. It's all about interests, the self-interests of those parties. So it's spread across all the institutions and uh, ministries. For the people in southern Iraq, a reliable mm-hmm. provision of clean water and electricity has been a problem, as you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. According to official right. figures in the aftermath of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003, Iraq has allocated $40 billion in state budgets to rebuild the country's power grid. Meanwhile, there's the issue of salinity of potable water, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, and insufficient Mm -hmm. water supply at some points. Can you talk about these problems with electricity and poor quality of potable water? And what are the causes of these problems? Well, I think the... The most obvious answer, it is one word answer, it's corruption. If we talk about electricity, I mean, Iraq has been in a crisis since 2003. And we could only hear about promises and talks about spending billions of monies to prepare and to reconstruct the infrastructure. But nothing tangible was happening and or is happening In some areas, the uh, power cut could last for five to ten hours, and those tend to increase in the summer season. And the only alternative for Iraqis is to pay for private generators, but these are very expensive. And so if you are poor, if you are not in financial position to pay, then you have to endure those long hours of electricity cut. And one of the promises that is very famous and is often referred to by Iraqi people is was the promise uh, made by Hussein al-Shahristani in 2012, who was a prime minister's deputy for energy efforts. Yes, I remember. Who said that we will, uh, yeah, by 2013, Iraq will export electricity uh, to other countries. So people still remember this very well and they still refer to it because nothing really uh, happened and electricity is going from bad to worse. This is about electricity. And if we talk about water, 
the quality of water is very poor in all cities of Iraq, but this has worsened more lately because of the construction of dams by Turkey and also by Iran. And because of the shortage in rainfall levels, there was a decrease in water in both the two main rivers in Iraq, the Tigris and Euphrates. And when water decreases, the salinity of water tends to be very high. The salinity is not something new. It's really a characteristic of uh, Shat al-Arab, which is where um, the two rivers of Tigris and Euphrates meet in Basra. It's already high, but because of the decrease in the water levels in, in both rivers, it's now very high and people are describing it as they say, if we touch the, the water coming from the top, our hands will burn. Anytime you have a high tide in the sea, it would actually bring in the salt water from the Gulf. Yeah, yes. exactly. Because as I said, corruption, because you could hear fake projects or uncompleted projects and nothing more. Well, rampant corruption is one of the problems raised by the protesters. Iraq has been ranked among the world's most corrupt countries. The Parliamentary Transparency Commission in Iraq uh, says because of government corruption, $320 billion cannot be accounted for in the past 15 mm -hmm. years. You did talk about the impact of corruption on the, some of the infrastructure work, such as electricity and water. Can you talk about the extent of corruption in Iraq and how this network actually works and who is benefiting from it? Well, it's entrenched. It's now deeply rooted in every single institution, in, every, in, in all institutions like health, education, uh, oil. So, I mean, political, economic, uh, educational institution. It's now endemic because it's reflected in them in all of those problems that Iraq is having now. Because imagine it's, it's 2018 and Iraq should be one of the wealthiest countries. And uh, its people don't have just their basics, like water and electricity. And you can imagine the extent, I mean, of corruption. It's really entrenched everywhere. It's now, we call it a political culture of corruption. And it's linked, again, to nepotism and at the expense of merits, qualifications, competence. You see people, unqualified people, in the wrong places. It's benefiting who? Of course, the uh, corrupt leaders It's fulfill their, their self-interests at the expense of people. People are not getting anything. To give you an example, a clearer example, is the uh, campaigns, the campaign before the elections. The generosity of the politicians and the amounts of money they spend to call for people to, to vote them out. It just reflects the degree and the extent of corruption. In tandem with that, Iraq is also experiencing a deepening poverty crisis. More than 30% mm -hmm. of the population in oil-rich southern provinces, where the protests started in 2015 and, mm -hmm. he, and this year, and the ongoing protests, and as well as 15% of Baghdad, Baghdad residents live in poverty. And mm -hmm. poverty rates in the provinces that had been previously captured by Daesh, the Islamic State, ISIS, is estimated to be more than 45%. Beyond these statistics, when we talk about poverty in Iraq, poverty and unemployment, how do they manifest themselves in Iraq? How, what does that mean for a family in Iraq? 
they could manifest them in, in a number of ways. Uh, so if we talk about poverty, you can, you can see uh, the streets of Iraqi cities filled with kids. So just uh, under the age of uh, 16, who are uh, just uh, doing uh, work like in traffic, selling gums or uh, tissues. And instead of going to schools, it manifests itself in people living in very poor uh, neighborhoods, lacking uh, the basics of life. And you have and the phenomenon of shanty towns in some of these major cities, right? Baghdad and mm-hmm. Basra and... Yes, exactly. And people could barely provide food uh, for themselves uh, to to feed, I mean, uh, their kids or or their families. And you could see uh, kids who are eating from from the landfills in Iraqi streets. And if we talk about unemployment, there are thousands of uh, newly graduates who find themselves jobless after graduation. So uh, the only solution for them is to resort to uh, lower wage uh, jobs. Many youth who graduated from, I don't know, College of Engineering or uh, Arts or anything else, and they work as taxi drivers, for example, or they, they don't have a job at all. And you could see them just sitting in, in cafes or, or just doing uh, nothing, really. That's uh, definitely a very uh, grim picture. It's probably too early and too difficult to assess at this juncture. But what do we know about the makeup of the protesters? Which classes and social groups are partaking in these protests? It's a mixture of different peoples from different uh, social backgrounds. But the majority of the protesters are young people. You could, you could say that it's the middle class. And I wouldn't say that only the jobless are protesting, but I would say that these are, are forming the majority of people. I, I've seen some of the protesters who, for example, have some family members uh, who have joined the uh, Hashid Shabi or the PMU, the paramilitary mobilizing unit fighting ISIS, but they didn't get any money. So they are living in very poor condition and they are protesting. You could see an old, an elderly, sorry, uh, who has lost a son in Spiker massacre. So when many uh, Shia soldiers were executed, were killed by ISIS in early 2014. I think if we talk about the intellectual elites, I think they are less in numbers now than, for example, if we compare the protests to, to 2015 protests. So these are the real disenfranchised people. These are the possible, and they include ranks of the urban poor, I'm sure. Of course. And um, one of the slogans raised by one protester was making reference to daughters of the current prime minister and the previous ones, so Nouri al-Maliki and Haider al-Abadi's daughters. I just want my daughter, he's saying, I just want my daughter to live up to the same standards that you, your daughters are living, which also indicates to the wide gap the people are now feeling between the way they live and the way their uh, leaders, their po- politicians are living. Another protest say, uh, my only dream is to get a job so that I can get married. And, and that unemployment is very high among the university-educated people too. I think the only exception maybe is um, the College of Medicine, 
but there is also there's because you know they need uh, doctors in hospitals and but there has been also a delay in the process of providing jobs for doctors as well yeah and i think this is probably a more elaborate discussion this is common phenomenon now in these urban protests that have to do with essentially this economic disparities and new liberal capitalism you see what we call this new phenomenon fairly new called middle class poor in other words these are mm-hmm. people who come even possibly from middle class families they are university educated even and they have aspirations of being middle class and as they're connected to the rest of the world through the uh, internet they understand yeah. budgets they understand the country has has been amassing so much revenue through export of oil yeah i, I agree with you and yeah. Uh, yeah i think this is one of the interesting thing about uh, the protests because you can feel that this is uh, a new generation uh, they mm. don't want uh, to live uh, this life they they are connected to the world they see how the world is living so they ask themselves why why we are living a different life why we are we have to endure those uh, difficult uh, conditions why we are not getting our rights it doesn't matter to them if their leaders uh, belong to the same sect they no longer subscribe to those old narratives you know of victimhood or of the right to rule they don't care about that they just want to live their lives with dignity so in, in a way and this could be taken as something positive they had transcended identity politics that had been used as a fault line with the ruling bloc with the ruling parties as a way yeah, to control exactly. they, the population exactly they yes they feel they, they these don't represent them anymore it doesn't matter if they are uh, muslims or or shias they, they don't see them um, as uh, uh, representative of them i, I see it as uh, yeah as a clash of identities and because uh, they also sometimes in, in in some of the slogans they refer to them as uh, iranian rather than iraqis because they feel that they are more loyal to iran than to iraq in a way it's a form of class struggle what about participation of women in this protest what, what is it mm. how would you characterize the gender makeup of these mm. uh, protests mm. this is a very good question really and one that i myself uh, have been asking because uh, the number of women is close to zero in some cities there it's not i mean to non existent in some cities and there are if you if you could see women they are really very few that you can barely notice their existence and there are many reasons to be honest with you um political social uh, religious and cultural uh, reasons that could uh, prevent women that could stand as obstacles to women's participation in the protests it's not that uh, women are living in, in uh, better conditions than uh, men but there are several factors that prevent women from participation especially in the south to give you an example not all women can make can make up their mind and just decide that they would go now to the streets take to the streets and participate they have to seek agreements of their family members their husbands their brothers or fathers so it's it's not easy for women to participate for several reasons really you mentioned uh, that these protests are spontaneous and lack defined organization and clear leadership let's talk about the role played by political parties in these protests in terms of participation uh, the sadrs that is referred to the supporters of iraqi cleric muqtada al-sadr 
who did mm-hmm. well in the May election, in the parliamentary election in Iraq in May. Right. This address took part in previous protests. Is there any evidence that some of the larger political parties are involved in these protests in terms of actual participation? I mean, do you think the rank and file are involved in this protest? Uh, n- not yet, not so far. Especially if you go back to a, c- a couple of weeks ago, so when the protests were very, very intense in southern cities, uh, you could hear accusations coming from different political parties, leaders, accusing uh, the, the protesters uh, of being Baathists uh, or even uh, intruders. Even uh, Muqtada Sadr, he hasn't had uh, any clear stance on the protest aside from uh, tweeting every now and then in support of the protest, but it's not in his uh, self-interest because now he's a winner. His block is uh, uh, is one of uh, the winners of the elections and they are busy now forming the governments. So unlike the context of 2015, it does not fall in his interest to uh, intervene now. So there is no involvement up until this moment by political par- parties in the protests. We should mention that the Saudis bloc has stated that the formation of a new government in Iraq uh, must mm-hmm. be postponed till the protesters' demands. I don't think he said they have to be fulfilled. At the same time, uh, being very busy forming uh, alliances. It's just a hypocritical uh, statement because um, the Sadrists, uh, just like other political parties, are now very busy forming alliances and also based on the same ethno-sectarian lines. The news uh, coming today and yesterday about trying to form the biggest bloc to form the government and the Sadrists is not an exclusion to this uh, process. They are part of it. Yes, and uh, obviously they would rather not deal with the situation that involves protests against the government. So they would yes, rather wait course, yeah. and make sure that Haider al-Abadi's caretaker government try to deal with this situation, which as far as they're concerned is quite a mess. And people are articulating their demands in the streets. The record low turnout of only 44% of eligible voters casting their ballots in Iraq's parliamentary elections in May was also understood at the time by many Iraq observers as a sign Mm -hmm. of disaffection with the current political structure. As we are watching the ongoing protests in Iraq today, these protests are also disillusioned with the formal politics and the political parties jockeying for power. Hence, they have opted for another form of struggle, street politics, and collective Mm -hmm. action in lieu of the ballot box. Is that a fair assessment of the situation? We can can confidently say that there is a disenchantment with the ballot box, which is sort of nationwide and it's not limited to one geographic area. Yeah, of course. People try to send a message, not just to the government, not just the political parties, but to the whole world, saying that, look, we are not participating in the election. We are not going to vote because we lost faith in those political parties. And not just uh, this, because, uh, you know, you have the election, the election law itself. People now are aware that this law has been basically designed just to reproduce and recycle the same old faces. So even if they go and try to vote, and although there is no uh, alternative because uh, largely they are the same uh, political parties, but even if they manage to find, let us say, a smaller, more independent party, 
it won't win. It won't get uh, an opportunity because of the the election law and then the uh, post-election alliances, again, based on the quota system. It's not just a loss in the faith, but also sending a message that, look, this has to change. The election law has to change so that we can fairly participate and vote for the people that we we think uh, represent us. The second message came just two months later when people took this to the streets. Because as I said, although the incentive of the protest was the basic demands, but if you listen to the chants, to the slogans, you could feel that it's much beyond than that. It's against uh, not just the corruption, it's against all the political parties. And some of people raised this issue, really. They raised the issue of the elections law, raised the issue of the constitutions. But the problem is, I think, that people still lack political awareness because when you hear someone saying we need the parliamentary uh, system to be replaced with a presidential one, you can see that uh, they still don't have uh, this level of political uh, consciousness because a presidential system won't solve uh, Iraq's problem. The problem is about the the, the political parties, the political blocs based on two um, pillars of leadership and also money. And and a system that was established in the aftermath of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq and fortified by the Iranian regime's intervention in Iraq by buttressing these forces, these political groups. Yeah, exactly. And that's why you could uh, feel this, that, again, uh, this was reflected in the uh, chants and the slogans of the protesters, because uh, basically they don't want interference from a- any other country. Uh, it's not just about Iran, but especially from Iran, because they feel that their intervention, their interference in Iraq was not for the sake of building a strong Iraqi state but for uh, powering themselves, powering uh, through uh, backing uh, the parties, backing their armed groups, the militias, and contributing to the instability in Iraq. Balsam Mustafa is a PhD researcher in modern languages and politics at the University of Birmingham. She spoke with Shahram Agamir. Please tune in next week for the second part of this interview. To learn more about the political and economic situation in Iraq, visit jadmagazine.com From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Zazu Dreams by Judea El-Hadaf, ostensibly a children's book, is a multidimensional philosophical tale that transcends all barriers, ethnic, religious, linguistic, geographic, 
and chronologic. In it, wise animals and the likes of Maimonides pontificate in Yiddish, Farsi, Arabic, Turkish, Ladino, and English interchangeably, effortlessly and seemingly without a trace of self-consciousness, making for a unique, freewheeling, and surprising narrative. Dr. Karo Judeo Al-Hadif spoke with Khalil Bendib in New York. Your new book, Zazu Dreams, Between the Scarab and the Dung Beetle, is ostensibly a children's book, but it should be added that this is for children 7 to 77 years old. It's the first children's book with so many asterisks and footnotes. It's chock full of fantastic historical information. One thing I found fascinating about your book is the universally encompassing reach of it, ostensibly about Jewish history, but really not just about Jewish history, but the history of the whole universe. Kara, how did you come up with such a fantastic story? I'll back up a little bit. I identify Zazu Dreams between the Scarab and the Dung Beetle, a cautionary fable for the Anthropocene era as a fable for adults, written as a children's narrative. I don't classify it as a children's book. I do see it as an opportunity for adults to re-examine how we understand our relationship to education and understand our relationship to children's capacity and our own capacity for empathy. For me, the way to identify a particular approach is to make it personal. And the perspective comes from an Arab-Jewish boy who's about 10 years old. His name is Zazu, and my son is also Zazu, who's 7 years old in reality. But it's from his perspective beginning to understand the relationship between the horrors that we see in relation to ecological devastation in relation to human rights abuses and understanding that we can address these issues if we look at relationships. Yes, and it's this layeredness that caught my attention. Your very name is Arab and Jewish at the same time, but in people's minds it's certainly a paradox, right? (laughs) One could be both, and then there's no real contradiction there. But the first time I laid my eyes on your name, Kara Judea Al-Hedef, I thought, wow, this is interesting. Uh, very yeah. Jewish-sounding. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> and at the same time, very Arab-sounding. It wasn't yeah. one of those mixes where it was either one or the other. It was both. And the book sustains that richness and that layeredness. Tell us what it means to you, Zazu. Zazu, I had understood, is a Hebrew term for movement. And I projected all kinds of meaning into that. And more pertinent to this particular project, um, the idea of the law of impermanence and the idea that everything is in flux. And I take that on in the book in the context of history as a folded time. And how do we look at history not as static, but as something that is living and breathing? The word Zazu is connected to the idea of motivation of movement. For me, (laughs) growing up, hearing the term Zazu, it had more to do with elegance and Algerian context. In your character, your hero's peregrinations, you run into not only some of your ancestors, but also into illustrious figures such as Ibn Sina, the Andalusian father of modern medicine, Avicen, and Maimonides, the great Arab-Jewish philosopher. Tell us more. I wanted to elicit that sense of dynamism 
those two people who you mentioned, Ibn Sina and, and Maimonides, represent that to me in such a beautiful commitment to collaboration in different ways. Zazu, in the story, he visits the great polymath Persian Ibn Sina in a, a restaurant that exists now in Shiraz, Iran, called the Salt Restaurant. So then there's a whole discussion of salt and the politics of architecture using salt. So it's a constant back and forth between historical figures and contemporary political challenges and possibilities. And I saw Ibn Sina as a way to make these kinds of bridges. Zazu meets Maimonides because he's traveling past Egypt. Um Kathum, who's one of the greatest singers in history from Egypt, her voice rouses Maimonides from the dead. And he then speaks to Maimonides, and they have a conversation about Spinoza. It's uh, a constant dialogue between various time frames, cultural context, and geographical locations. One of the great pleasures of this book, uh, for someone like myself, who grew up in Algeria, we spoke combinations of Arabic, French, Spanish, Turkish, Berber. One pleasure for me reading this book was the multitude of bits and pieces of languages that you employed in it. Ladino, Spanish... Arabic, Farsi, Hebrew, French, always followed yes. by an English translation in parentheses. This is quite unique and unusual. Why did you choose to do this? Um, again, that goes back to your first question about the the, the multiplicity and the universality. Um, the language of, of my family, the Sephardim, is Ladino, and Ladino is um, the epitome for me, of, of multiplicity. It is, it is a hybrid language. Um, in the introduction to the performance that I give, and I can share a little bit more about that, um, it's a performance that I've been doing over the past year. Um, I explore Ladino um, in the context of UNESCO's Red Book, um, in which they state that Ladino is a, what they call a seriously endangered language. And in our story, we're talking about an endangered cultural species, so the Spanish, Sephardic, and Arab Mizrahi Jewish peoples, um, who are not assimilated into the U.S. because of their Hispanic and Arabic culture, and that Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews share common histories with both Latinx and Muslim communities in the U.S. So I elicit the hybrid nature of Ladino as a way to address this idea that Things are not black and white. They're obviously they're not absolute. They're absolutely not absolute. And how then do we deal with those complexities? How do we take the language of storytelling in relation to the language of science, the language of contemporary media, social media? How does empathy fit into these languages? How do we identify truth in these languages when we're questioning or certain? Components of our society are questioning the truth of science, again, climate deniers. So all of these questions, for me, are implicit in the integration of using Ladino in the text. And a side issue, the way I perform it, then, is to incorporate Ladino proverbs that are read throughout the performance. So there are two performers reading the main narrative, and then the end notes, and there are about 400 end notes of historical, literary, economic, environmental, scientific references. And 
in the midst of that dialogue between those two voices, the voice of storytelling and the voice, for example, of science, there are Ladino proverbs that are performed throughout the, the actual event. When you say the Ladino is a hybrid language, it's Spanish with some uh, Hebrew in it. Uh, what else? Is that, those are the two main components? Yeah, Spanish, Hebrew, Arabic, Turkish, Greek, um, depending on where the... Ladino is spoken, yeah. Well, yeah, if it's in Turkey, the, there's some the Turkish. Yeah, fled. okay. <laughs> um, so Bulgarian, Italian, French. It, it varies. So much of right. yeah, where, you, where they came from um, in relation to where they had, had landed. Even your animals are sort of polyglots and interesting people. Your story is peopled by uh, animals that talk, share wisdom, some of whom even are Jewish, or specifically there's a certain Jewish parrot. <laughs> yes, the Ladino-speaking parrot, yeah. <laughs> Ladino-speaking Jewish parrot. You run into friendly whales. You even meet Ahab at one point. Magical camels are there as well. But yeah, one thing that intrigued me... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What intrigued me was the omnipresence of the scarabs and dung beetles. Yes. So what's the significance to you of the beetles and the scarabs? Two things. So in reference to the omnipresence of the, the animals, I would like to emphasize that humans are animals. I think we are very much, at least in U.S. dominant culture, we've forgotten that we are animals. And we do everything in our power with our um, obsessive hygiene frenzy to de-animalize ourselves. And the idea of returning to an indigenous knowledge base where there's a kinship with animals and there's a, there's a learning relationship with animals. So I hope to, to bring that out. And in relation to the scarab, so the title, the second part of the title, uh, between the scarab and the dung beetle, going back to contradiction and or paradox, this creature, the beetle, had so many imposed meanings on it throughout history of both being reviled and revered. So where do we take this both and? What do we do with this position of the in-between? And specifically, for example, the dung beetle, and there's, a, as you know, a very in-depth discussion of waste, and in particular, poop. Um, but the idea of waste, if I backtrack, how certain peoples historically and obviously very much right now in, in 2018 are seen as disposable, and how do we redefine our relationship to waste? And, of course, in terms of how, how food is wasted, 40% of food in the U.S. is wasted, and then we look at food in landfills and the, and the mass methane that that causes. So how do we redefine our relationship to waste both in environmental issues and in social justice context. Yeah. And somebody's uh, waste might be someone else's gold. Uh, yeah, very much. And the dung beetle is a great example of that. Also, there are extensive endnotes describing the history of beetles and their diversity and the phenomenal biodiversity involved in among beetles and the importance of dung beetles as cleaning. They clean the earth, just like sea slugs, in-depth investigation in sea slugs, cleaning the ocean and their relationship with coral reefs and what happens with pollution. So looking at ecosystems, cultural ecosystems and biological ecosystems and the relationship, again, between humanitarian and ecological world. Where do they cross over? And the dung beetle is very much a part of that 
which then slips into the, the idea of the scarab, and the scarab being worshipped, seen as um, a talisman, like um, the hand of Fatima or the evil eye, which is very present throughout the entire story. And how do we, how are we protecting ourselves? How are we identifying the other as a threat or the other within as a threat or something, somebody we can potentially collaborate with to make social change? So all of that is implicit and explored. So under the guise of a children's book, it's a very philosophical work. One of the most enjoyable things about your book are the beautiful paintings that illustrate your story. It's hard to describe them. They're quite unique and fantastical. They look in a a way very traditional, very Jewish, and very medieval at the same time. Yes, the images are by my mother. uh, Michaela Amateo Amato. So that is your mother. She's an artist. Yeah, she's a visual artist, professor of art and art history and women's studies at Penn State University. Before we conclude, is there a tour? Are you planning any events in our area, in the Bay Area at all? Yes. So um, my partner, the love of my life, Rob Myers, who's biodiversity ecologist, and I have been performing Zazu Dreams with Palestinian-Israeli singers and Latino speakers, oud instrumentalists. In, we were just in, in Boulder, Colorado at the planetarium, and we will be in Berkeley with the Western Institute for Social Research at their next event in October. And if people are interested, they can go to zazudreams.com. Dr. Kara Judea Al-Hadith is a scholar and artist and author of Zazu Dreams. For more information about her work, please visit karajudea.com that's c-a-r-a-j-u-d-e-a dot com from Pacifica Radio this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa and that's it for us this week Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. (laughs) 